I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. Welcome back to Go and Do. This week we have Alma chapters 32 through 35, and Feely and I discuss how Alma compares faith to a seed and how we have to nourish it and tend it for it to grow. We also learn about how the Zoramites remove some of their own from their synagogues because of their poverty, and Alma teaches them how worship can happen anytime, anywhere through prayer. We hope you enjoy it. So the last lesson, we, we learn about the Zoramites and kind of the stuff that they're doing that's not in agreement with the, the way that Alma has taught people, that they've kind of uh, taken the gospel and the way their, their means of worship and kind of added their own flavor to it, if you will, with the ramiumptum and stuff like that. And in this lesson, it's what are they going to do about it? You know, they start... Um, they, they determine that the best way to approach this kind of dissidence or this kind of apostasy from the truth is just to teach the truth and reteach people and uh, try to get as many people to listen as possible. But once again, this kind of goes with their their principle of agency. And we're not going to force people to do a certain thing. We're going to teach the truth and leave it up to people to decide who's going to follow and how they're going to act. And I think that's really interesting. And of course, in Alma 32 is a very famous chapter for many reasons, but um, I started seeing a few things in there that I hadn't really paid attention to before, or at least that didn't really call out to me before. Um, one of them, he repeats several times that who are the people that are, are listening the most? And, um, it says in verse 2, they began to have success among the poor class of people. For behold, they were cast out of the synagogues because of the coarseness of their apparel. Therefore, they were not permitted to enter into the synagogues to worship God, being esteemed as filthiness. Therefore, they were poor, yea, they were esteemed by their brethren as dross. Therefore, they were poor as things of the world, and also they were poor in heart. And I started to think about that kind of like... Was it because they were poor that they were listening? And I think the poor in heart section, of course, is talking about humility, right? That they were humbled. They, they, hadn't, 
they were looking for for answers and for more about what is this life all about because now we've been kicked out of the synagogues as far as like the their lack of wealth i think it had more to do with the fact that they were kicked out than the fact that they didn't have money right um that they were ready to listen ready to learn they were excluded from from worship that everyone else was doing and so they were like well what's in it? what what about this gospel is for us what where can we turn and that's when they were ready to listen to Alma and his brethren well it's it's funny because Alma and Amulek and Ammon they've dealt with different types of people they're teaching like they've taught the enemy they've taught the Lamanites and and theirs was a total different view on God and and in in some cases uh no view on God you know and then they've dealt with some antichrist which was they knew better but then they chose to purposely fight against it and then these ones it was more they gradually became corrupted and prideful and fell away and what i noticed is with these people is they tried to make the gospel exclusive mm-hmm. and that's what alma when he um quotes sinuk and sinus to kind of explain to the people you can pray and worship god at any point any way you can you don't need a specific time of the day and you don't need only to do it on Sundays you also don't need to have a fancy building to do it in. and it's interesting because in the humble part you know there he mentions two types of humility he mentions one where you are compelled to be humble where your circumstances or external forces drive you to just it's almost like after everything gets taken from you you eventually are willing to look for the lord and then he mentions a different kind of humble that says you don't need you kind of don't need to go through those experiences you will seek to be humble on your own yeah. and he talks the difference he tells the people the first one but then he also mentions but you know i perceive that some of you would have been humbled regardless of this situation you know regardless of being poor and stuff 32 verse 14 that's where it says and now i say unto you that because you are compelled to be humble ye are blessed do ye not suppose that they are more blessed who truly humble themselves because of the word and i think he's kind of saying when you when you hear the truth of the gospel and you choose to accept it you choose to give it a try you choose to plant the seed to nourish it with full purpose of heart you're even more blessed than if you have if you try all the options like almost like a process of elimination and this is your last recourse and that's really interesting because i think I'll, i'd like to think that i'm a humble person in the form of like i choose to be humble mm. but i think most of the time i fall under i I choose I am compelled to be humble. <laughs> I find myself in a dire straits or in a bad scenario and I think and then I remember the Lord. You know what I mean? I think most people are that way. I mean, 
it's it's almost easier to be humble when you look at your life and you're like everything's going poorly and I just I need help I I I don't know where else to go and you're kind of like like that you're compelled to be humble it's harder when things are going really well and when you're feeling kind of content with life to then be open to big life changes or to um, I need to be better or I need to find ways to improve myself because you can look at things and say you know actually things are going pretty well and for, for people like that to still want to say how can I be better how can things be better what am I doing in my life right now even though it's going well that maybe not in agreement with the teachings of Jesus Christ how, how can I become more like him that takes a little bit more self-awareness kind of one one verse that that struck me about that was in Alma thirty four thirty four. It says, "Ye cannot say, when ye are brought to that awful crisis, that I will repent, that I will return to my God. Yea, ye cannot say this, for in that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time ye go out of this life, that same spirit will have the power to to possess your body in the eternal world." And I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but the reason why is that. There's two two things that stuck out to me. Is number one, we are who we are on this earth and after. And the habits and the the way that we treat the gospel here doesn't just magically change once this life is is over. Our approach to to what kind of people we want to be, we need to start cultivating that now. And then, you know, he's talking about awful crisis of Basically, when you pass away and you're you're ready to uh, be judged, it's not time to, at that point, start repenting. But I think also, in our lives, you see people that are going down a road, and you can kind of tell them, and you can kind of give them warnings. Hey, you're, I see you're kind of doing this, or maybe it's even yourself. You start to see, I'm, I'm not really on the, the right path, and unfortunately. Oftentimes, it's a it's only a huge catastrophe in in your life that's going to immediately humble you to look for the Lord, and that's really unfortunate because I think in a lot of ways it shouldn't take a catastrophe to get us to turn to the Lord, but unfortunately, a lot of times it does because when thing, things are going well, even in when you're living in iniquity or when you're doing something that you know you ought not to do, the biggest catalyst for change is some huge thing to happen to you. And I think that's also another way of being compelled to humility, that the Lord really would rather us look for ways to be humble before having to experience a catastrophe to bring us to humility, you know? It's interesting, though, because the, the section in the, in the manual is we, we can choose to be humble. And I think more we see examples, in, even in the scriptures, of people that are humbled, not that people choose to be humble. And, you know, the question in the, in the Sunday School Manual is, how can being brought to be humble be a blessing? I think that sometimes we need a, a spiritual wake-up call. We need a slap in the face, you know. We need some something to happen to us to really make us take a harder look at ourselves. And are we doing the right stuff? And are we being humble? 
or are we kind of falling into that cycle of hey I'm doing well and I have my costly apparel and I don't have any reason to change because I must be doing everything right the Lord is blessing me um, we need kind of a, a, a check and I think that the Lord does that sometimes <laughs> um, in unexpected ways and it, and it does humble you and that is a blessing to kind of bring you back down to ground but I, I think I still think that the Lord would rather us just kind of be always looking for ways to be better rather than having to call us in in a drastic way to repentance. Yeah, when you when you read that scripture in Alma chapter thirty-four, it kind of says that the same spirit doth possess you at the time that you leave this life. Right. Therefore you can't put things off. It is if you think you can repent at the last second. And I thought that was interesting because in verse 31, it says, I would that ye should come forth and harden not your hearts any longer. For behold, now is the time and the day of your salvation. Therefore, if ye will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately shall the plan of redemption be brought about unto you. And so one is telling us that as soon as you repent, immediately you'll start feeling changes and improvements and good things and the other one is saying is well if you wait too long it's not going to work for you and it's kind of it feels a little bit contradicting but what it's trying to tell us is one is done with full purpose and real intent and the other one is done because you don't want to get caught you don't want to be in trouble and the thought i had was that same spirit in the lesson it tells us it warns us about procrastination, and I think one of the one of the uh, activities uh, teaching plans was to help teach your children what you know. In thirty four, does your family know what it means to procrastinate? Maybe someone can share examples of procrastination. And I think when it says in the same spirit possess your body, I think it kind of means you will carry with you your same habits. Yep. And if you have a habit of procrastinating, if you have a habit of uh, justifying things, it's not, you're not going to magically change your habits and your nature. That's what this life is for, you know. Sure, and we all have those habits, but the gospel is training us to overcome them. And if you do it with real intent, it doesn't really matter what bad habits you have. It will work and you'll get improvement. But if you ignore the training, if you don't put the effort when you can, you'll find that maybe, like, it's going to be very, very difficult. You know, one thing I found interesting, well, we all love Alma's example of he's trying to teach, and, you know, he, he references the word. And he likens the word unto a seed. And it's a very uh, rich metaphor where everyone can relate to a seed. Everyone can relate to the process of having something grow. And then he, the, the part that I really like the most is when he talks about if you do not cast it out because of your unbelief, Sometimes where he says, 
40 and 32 40 and thus if you will not nourish the word looking forward with an eye of faith to the fruit thereof you can never pluck of the fruit of the tree of life and okay 38 is even better but if you neglect the tree that it and, and it takes and you take no thought for its nourishment behold it will not get any root and when the heat of the sun cometh and scorches it because it hath no root it withers away and you pluck it up and cast it out now this is not because the seed was not good neither mm. it is is it because the fruit was not desirable i find that within me a lot that the seed is good i know the seed is good but i'm not doing the steps to nourish it it's like people you run across are like oh yeah i know the gospel's true i'm i'm just taking a break right now i'm just not living it right now i, I you know i'm just i know i could do better it the, those are the same things as you know the seed is good and the fruit which is improvement eternal life it's being better fulfilling the measure of our creation being forever with our families all those fruits it's like oh you want those yes i want them but not enough to do anything about it but i do want that fruit that is a good fruit i hope everyone gets a fruit right? or even or even like myself i'm a fifth generation pioneer right and so i can say oh yeah well my family goes way back to the original pioneers it's kind of what we do it's our thing to be members of the church and you know but what are you doing to constantly nourish that we can't live on heritage alone you know you can't live on tradition alone well my my dad's a bishop so you know well you can't live that what are you doing to constantly be feeding that seed because even, you know, saying I served a mission, I did all this stuff, that's great. All of that is great, and it's a great foundation. And the ground may be very fertile in this sense, right? But even if, even if you have the same ground and the same from seeds from the same plant, and they're all planted in the same way, if you don't tend to each one exactly the same and you're not constantly nourishing, watering, and tending to it, certain ones will grow and certain ones will die, wither away, or whatever it says, dry up in the sun, scorcheth it, because it hath no root and it withers away. It doesn't really matter how, how well the tree is going. It could be a fully grown oak tree, but if you stop watering it and you cut it off from nutrients, it will die. So I think what I learned from this is that there, there is no one beyond the need to take care of that tree, to continue to nourish it. You never reach a point where you're like, okay, well, it's strong enough to live on its own now. I don't need to keep nourishing it. No, you need to keep learning all that you can about the gospel and studying more and and living it every single day to continue nourishing it. No one is beyond the reach of temptation. No one is beyond the reach of of complacency, you know? Yeah, I, I really like the imagery of 
this example that Alma uses is because you think of, um, you know, in verse 37, you think of a tree and it doesn't have one root. Roots, roots are many, many branches, many, many. It's like a strand of roots, you know, and there's many facets to those. And you could be working on one, but you need another one. And, and in 37, he says, when you, even when you begin to feel, in 34, he says, the word begins to swell in your soul. You start understanding that this is a good outcome. These are good habits I'm creating. These are good positive things. And in 37, he says, let us nourish it with great care. And just just that alone, with great care. And you think about, you know, I have neighbors in my backyard who they could win every gardening award ever created in the history of mankind because they're everything. I see him individually watering specific bushes that are a little drier than the ones next to it. You know, <laughs> like he is out there every day. Every Every time there's like just the thought of a weed and he goes and plucks it out, you know, like, like he never lets it get out of and it. Because of that, it looks, it looks like a, it looks like a magazine picture, you know, like that it's been <laughs> Photoshopped to perfection, but it's, they have just the most care. And when I think of that phrase, let us nourish it with great care. It's like with diligence, with, with great care. And if we treat it that way, it will get root. We'll start understanding all of the facets of those principles. We'll start seeing how they, they interact with other ones, and, and and they'll you know, and then you know in thirty eight again when he says, and when the heat of the sun cometh and scorches it, meaning there will be opposition. Opposition will come and challenge it. It will come and try to destroy it. Even at times, the same opposition, the same heat of the sun it needs to grow, it also can be bad for it, you know. Right. Um, and, and I think sometimes we, we, we make some dangerous assumptions that I'm just trying to correct here. One is that um, if the seed was good, it would always grow in any ground. The other one is if, if it was good, there would be no need to nourish it. It's self-sustaining, right? right? And and what he's, I think, what he's trying to share is there's, there is God's word and plan, and we have to ensure that we get the right seed, and then there is our agency, where we have to ensure that we are the laborer, that we plant it, we grow. The seed will do its thing. We don't have to worry about that, and that's kind of. It's a very much almost like um, like the scientific method testing of, of something, you know. Give it a try, experiment with your faith. And, th and then he goes and, and talks about when you know it's good, then your faith is dormant because now you know. But that's not the end. You need to continue. Again, in 41... But if you will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it bring, beginneth to grow, by your faith with great diligence and with patience. 
working on. That's another one with patience. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we think right away we want to go from an acorn to an oak tree and build a tree house in like three days. It, mm -hmm. No, it's like 30 days, 30 years. I mean. <laughs> Looking forward to the fruit thereof. It shall take root and behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. It's interesting that you bring up the sun because it says that the, the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it. But we all know that plants require sunlight. And if that if that part of the metaphor represents kind of trials and afflictions, that's kind of the test of the faith, right? That if if the plant is strong and if it's being nourished and watered and tended to, and then the sun comes and it's just as hot for every single plant. It's not going to be hotter for this plant and not as hot for the plant next to it. It's the same temperature. And it can either serve to scorch the plant if it's not being taken care of and cause it to wither and die, or it can serve to fortify it, right? When we have trials and afflictions, I think they can either serve to wear us down and cause us to quit, or they can cause us to rely more on our faith and embrace the teachings of the gospel and adhere to the gospel even harder so that we can get through those trials and afflictions. And then we can look back and say, we made it through that. That terrible thing that happened to us, we were able to overcome that because of our faith. And it makes you even stronger. I mean, think about the biggest trials in your life when you have been compelled to humility. And when you've looked back on that and said, I handled that well, or the times when you look back on it and say, you know, I didn't handle that all that well. You can tell that the same trials could either lead to your your growth or your destruction, depending on how you approach it. And I think I think back to um, I think it was Spencer W. Kimball who used to say something like, "You should always have a plan for when temptation comes." Right? You you should be nourishing that plant already, so that when the trial comes, it doesn't just obliterate you. If if the trial comes and then you start saying, "Oh, I gotta, I gotta start being better. I gotta change," you're you're out there watering that plant and and picking the weeds as the sun is burning it up. It's a little late, and that's kind of what he gets to in in, in chapter thirty four, when he's saying, uh, "You you can't wait till the very end to start trying to repent. At some point, it's too late. You need to be constantly nourishing that plant, constantly fortifying your faith. Otherwise." you are susceptible to falling. It's kind of interesting how such a simple metaphor can be kind of complex at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in 43, you know, after he says in 42, how precious the fruit and how amazing it's going to be when you reap that fruit from all of this hard work. And he kind of sums it up with 43 where he says, then my brethren... You shall reap the reward, rewards of your faith, and your diligence, and patience, and long suffering, waiting for the tree to bring forth fruit unto you. And it's, I I wonder, you know, I I started thinking, what does this look like in real life? Like what, what, how do you, how do you nourish the word? What is if the word, if the seed is the word, and the word is the gospel? How do you actually do this? Well, it's very simple. <laughs> it's you have 
I think you have to think, how do I worship Jesus Christ? And, and one, I have to know about him. So I have to read the scriptures. And I have to listen to his commandments and understand what he says. I have to do things that invite the spirit. So then I can apply the scriptures and his words individually to my life through the spirit. You know, so he can speak to me. And then I have to be a disciple. Follow his teachings. Be kind to others. Do service. You know, we'll get into charity in a little bit. Be charitable. Think, you know. And in all those aspects of the gospel, you know, of having faith, repenting, making covenants, baptism, you know. And, and then continuing to um, improve and progress until the end. You know, enduring to the end. Those things, if it's like, if it's supposed to be like this metaphor, they're not grand heaps and gestures. And they are as simple as how do you tend a garden? You do a little bit every day. Just a little bit. You're mindful of it and you do a little bit. And if you're diligent and you're patient and you have long suffering, the the growth will be a growth within you where you will see your nature, your desires will change. Your your temper will be tempered. You'll start getting different eyes and heart and ears to hear things differently. You'll be born again, basically. And it's a gradual process. And it, you know, for Alma, he speaks about how he went from extreme to another extreme very quickly and through this great suffering. And he then explains to these people, it, it doesn't, you need to be humble, you need to improve. It, just as exquisite as was my pain, so was my joy in understanding that there is an atonement. And, and that's what he's going to get into is the atonement makes this growth, this seed growing, this, this, um, this, the, the atonement makes the gospel of Jesus Christ function and work. Yeah. You know, and so then they're going to get a little bit into that. Well, I, I imagine that they probably had, as he's teaching the people this stuff, that someone was probably like, you know, I would, I would love to be able to nourish it. I would love to be able to worship the way that you're saying, but they've kicked us out of these synagogues and I don't, what are we supposed to do? We're not allowed to worship. We're not allowed to find ways to nourish this seed. And that's when he kind of goes into chapter 33 where he's like, listen, this is not the only place you can worship. If you think the only place you can worship is the synagogue, you're missing out on a lot because you can pray anywhere. You can do any of this. This is stuff that we've learned before. There's these other prophets that have talked about it, saying, cry unto me in the in your field, in the wilderness, in your closet. You know, it doesn't matter. You've been cast out, but worship is more than just going to the synagogue. 
And I think that, that really speaks to our situation right now. Unfortunately, most of us can't go on a regular basis to have church in the church building as a community. But we need to find on the weeks that we're not able to go or until we can go again, we need to find ways to continue that worship outside of that church building. You know, whether it's having the sacrament in our home or finding a way to encourage virtual meetings in our wards, whatever we can do to continue that that worship even outside of the church building itself. And luckily we haven't been kicked out by fellow members, it's just more <laughs> the circumstances of the situation right now. That is interesting how, you know, he he talks about Zenos and Zenic when he quotes them, scriptures yes. from them. You know, they're prophets and you know, it tells us that they were most likely in from their scriptures, from their brass plates that they brought with them. You know, they're Old Testament prophets. But in verse 12 of 33, Alma says, Do you believe those scriptures which were written? And then in 14, again, he says, Behold, my brethren, I would ask if ye have read the scriptures. So he kind of, is asking them, have you have you not read? Did did you not watch General Conference? Did you not read the letter the first presidency sent out or the area authority? You know? And then in sixteen he says, For behold, he says, Thou art angry, O Lord, with this people, because they will not understand thy mercies which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy son. And so, and, and it's kind of like he's saying, what are these mercies? And this is the Zenos, or Zenoch, Zenoch. He's saying, Lord, thou art angry with these people because you they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the mercies. They're, they're making it way more complicated than it needs to be. And they're running away from you instead of running towards you. And then he says, and now behold, you see that the second prophet of old has testified of the Son of God. And because the people would not understand his words, they stoned him to death. I, I think about, does understanding, does it mean agreeing with as well? And how do we stone to death our prophets? metaphorically speaking by excusing or disregarding their advice you know taking them for granted and back to 16 behold they will not understand thy mercies meaning when we're we're being count i don't know i i i don't know i, I really like this section because my mind went into a lot of places maybe they're wrong maybe they're right but I felt that it really spoke to our day of are we willing to follow God's counsel and commandments or are we willing to follow our own counsel and commandments? And do we not understand that mercy? It was interesting because President Nelson, he this last conference, he shared with us the new proclamation 
the the proclamation on the um, restoration of the gospel, right? And he spoke about it as if he mentioned it is a great blessing and a great mercy that the Lord has given this to us. Yeah. And I thought to myself at first, I thought, what do you mean? We've already had that. How is that a great blessing? <laughs> but the but the when I think about this, I, I think what do we take for granted? We and, and he's kind of speaking here. We take the scriptures, we take our prophets, we take the gospel and the plan. And then in eighteen, you know, and this really drives it home to our day. It says, but behold, this is not all. These are not the only ones who have spoken concerning the Son of God. And then he says, Don't behold, we have Moses and, and all of these things. But if we think about it in our day, you know, we have the Book of Mormon, we have the Doctrine and Covenants, we have the Enzyme, we have almost weekly the brethren are, are you know, posting information and messages for us. And then in 20 but few understood the meaning of these things and this because of the hardness of their hearts but there were many who were so hardened that they would not look therefore they perish now the reason they would not look is they did not believe because that it would heal them he's talking about the you know the serpent and the example with moses but you look at it in our day something so simple you know, just be obedient, just be kind to each other, be thoughtful, you know. Sorry, I think verse 21 is the one that really hit me hard. Um, oh, my brethren, if ye could be healed by merely casting about your eyes that ye may be healed, would ye not behold quickly? Or would ye rather harden your hearts in unbelief and be slothful, that ye would not cast your about your eyes that ye might perish? I'm like... He's basically like, look, if you had the opportunity to just do something really simple and be healed or be be well, would you not do that? Or would you choose to be, uh, to, you know, harden your hearts in unbelief and be slothful? Which are two two separate things, right? You can be believing. You can say, oh, I know that'll do it. That'll help me. But then be slothful about it and be like, yeah, but that's so hard or... It takes so much work or I'm ah, just not really in the mood for it or whatever. And or or you may be like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally down to do it. But I just don't think that's going to going to help me. And it's like, well, the gospel is both uh, faith and action. Right. You first have to believe and then you need to act on it. And he's saying a lot of these principles of the gospel, a lot of these things about nourishing that seed that we were mentioning before aren't complicated. They're not difficult in and of themselves, but you have to believe that it's going to make a difference, and then you have to do it for it to have any effect, right? Well, it's, you know, at the end, he brings it back <clears throat> on 23. He brings it back to that metaphor. You know, I desire that you plant his word, this word, in your hearts as it beginneth to swell, and nourish it by faith, and behold, it will become a tree. And is this... I mean, if if I were in that crowd, you know, just watching, I could imagine one guy raising his hand and be like, but Alma, 
how long is this process? You know, and he's saying, well, it's a seed. How long is from a seed to a fruit? Here's a seed. Bring me back a basket of fruit. How long is that? Years, right? <laughs> and I think sometimes we feel it's a, kind of a this dichotomy because we have we know that as soon as we begin to exercise faith or just have a desire to believe, the atonement starts working in our behalf. You know, the heavens will help us and improve our life wherever we're at, right? But the fruit comes at the end of the path, you know, kind of like the graduation ceremony of discipleship. And, and we want both. But one, to be on the path does not mean we don't have all the benefits and the gifts. But it also means we're still on the path. We're not done. We're going to continue to require patience. We're going to have setbacks. Sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. You know, it may feel that way. But you have to keep going. Yeah. Then in in chapter 34, this, that's when Elma kind of hands it off and Amulek takes over. And he kind of starts getting down to more specifics about the plan of salvation and the atonement and the need for the atonement. And he mentions it as an experiment in verse 4. Yeah, even that you would have so much faith even even as even to plant the word in your hearts that you may try the experiment of its goodness. And what is it? What is the experiment? It's listen, have faith, give it a try. Right. It's kind of like the changes in your life that you are afraid to make, or that you're not sure if you're strong enough to make, just try it for a week and see what happens. You know, give it a give it some faith. Give it a try and say, Heavenly Father, I'm gonna do this thing that I know I probably ought to be doing but haven't been doing. Um, this is an experiment. Help help me help me see a difference. Help me feel a difference in my life. And so he's kind of saying, you know, that it is kind of an experiment. Try it and see what happens. And then he's like goes into a lot more detail about the fact that we need a savior. To redeem us when from from our fallen state, there's a section when he's talking about prayer again, uh, starting in verse 17. Therefore, may God grant unto you, my brethren, that you may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance, that you begin to call upon His name, that He would have mercy upon you. And then he lists like all these things: cry unto Him for mercy, for He is mighty to save. Humble yourselves and continue in prayer unto him. Cry unto him when you are in your fields, yea, over all your flocks. Cry unto him in your houses, yea, over all your household, both morning, midday, and evening. Yea, cry unto him against the power of your enemies. Yea, cry unto him against the devil, who is an enemy of all righteousness. Cry unto him over the crops of your fields, that ye may prosper in them. Cry over flocks in your fields, that, may, that they may increase. But this is not all. Ye may pour out your souls in your closets, and in your secret places, and in your wilderness. 
Yea, when you do not cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare and also for the welfare of those who are around you. He's saying God is accessible. And I think that this is something that these people really needed to hear. They'd just been chased out of the synagogues, which as far as they knew was the only way they could worship God. And he's saying God is accessible to everyone everywhere. And there's no certain, remember, in their churches, in their synagogues, they had a set prayer that they were all saying. And he's saying, that's not the way this works. You pray for whatever it is you need. You pray for your flocks to do well. You pray for your family to be healthy. You pray for everything and everywhere. You know, and I think that that is really something these people and us need to remember is that prayer is our way to access our Heavenly Father whenever and wherever and for whatever reason we have, right? Well, it also gives us a little peek into God's nature. He he cares about these everyday things that trouble you, you know? Yep. It's not just great things, like uh, what we think are great things, you know, like, uh, you know, I don't know. Pray that the rotation of the sun continues on its current trajectory through the galaxy. No, pray that uh, your household, everyone in your household will do well. That your fields, you know, that you'll figure out how to fix your tiller and then get the aeration over that you need. You know, th these are very practical things. And these are very, they feel like very honest requests. They're getting at the heart of what you need. And, and if, and it kind of is like, well, God is very attentive and very mindful and wants to know what's going on. What's going on in your school? How's that test that's coming up? What, you know, your hip is bothering you. Like, you know, very practical things where yep. sometimes they were trying to make the gospel very exclusive. God is way over there. We got to build this Ram Yomtum so he can hear us type of thing, right? I think verse 28 is like, it's one of the, the many times in the scriptures where it's like basically stating a, a really fundamental law of the gospel. And it says, And now behold, my beloved brethren, I say unto you, do not suppose that this is all. For after ye have done all these things, if ye turn away the needy and the naked and visit not the sick and afflicted and impart of your substance, if ye have to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if you do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is in vain, is vain and availeth you nothing, and ye are as hypocrites who deny the faith. And then 29, therefore, if ye do not remember to be charitable, ye are as dross, which the refiners do cast out, it being of no worth, and is trodden under foot of men. Basically saying, if you go through and pray for all this stuff, and you receive these blessings, and you have increase of flocks, and you have a healthy family, and you have prosperity, and then someone comes along and, and needs help, or there's an opportunity to be charitable, and you turn it down, maybe you were going to be the answer to someone's prayer, just like someone else was the answer to your prayer. But if you're not giving, and if you're not thinking about others, 
it's pretty clear there. <laughs> you're, you're hypocrites who do not deny the faith. You had all this faith in the Lord that he would bless you with the things that you need, and yet you're not willing to be a blessing for others. You're not willing to impart of what you have to bless others. And I think that that's really a, a fun, fun foundational principle of the gospel that where where much is given, much is required. When you receive a lot of blessings and you start to prosper, whether it's material, spiritual, whatever it may be, and you're not willing to give back to your fellow man, um, you're kind of defeating the purpose of receiving that blessing in the first place, right? Everything we receive from God is to help us help others. There's, uh, we go back to King Benjamin, you know, where he says uh, in Mosiah 4, 19, For behold, are we not all beggars? Do we not all depend upon the same being, even God, for all the substance which we have, for both food and raiment, for gold and for silver, and for all the riches which we which we have of every kind. And behold, even at this time ye have been calling on his name and begging for a remission of your sins, as he suffered you to pay in vain. And then he goes to tell us about in verse twenty four. And again I say unto the poor, ye who are have not yet have sufficient which is probably the majority of us, that you, remain from, that you remain from day to day. I mean, all you who deny the beggar because ye have not, I would that ye say in your hearts that I give not because I have not, but it is, but if I had, I would give. And then he goes to say, you know, when we condemn people, we say, oh, it's because of their situation that they're beggars, that yeah. we come under greater condemnation. And I think that, you know, when you're talking about verse 28, you know, where it's in the world we live in with the technology and our neighborhoods and our Costco's and Walmart's and we're all pretty well off. Even if we're, we don't think we're well off, there's others that are far worse off than us. Um, but I think sometimes it's hard to see people who are, sick and afflicted, naked and needy. Um, because our society does a really good job of separating, uh, how do I say? It, it's, I mean, on occasion you'll see a homeless person, you know, and we'll say, oh, well, there's a program for that. Now there's this for that. I pay my tithing and I pay my fast offerings. And it goes and it helps, and which it does, and it does great things. But I think, we need to think in a wider sense, you know, where, you know, in this entire earth, there are people in places that aren't as blessed as you and me, you know, and we need to be mindful of that and not begrudge them their circumstance. Uh, I think sometimes there, there can be a, um, temptation to kind of get on our own ramiumptum and say hey because we're here in america we're so blessed we're so grateful that we're here in the land of the free home of the brave i'm so glad that 
you know, I can have my cheeseburger and my this and that. And we need to be mindful that, um, as, as Elder Holland once said, you know, talk about, you know, the feeding the naked and the greedy. He, he said, by the grace of God, there go I. And, and he kind of meant, by his grace was I born here and they were there, right? Uh, and our situations could have been easily reversed. And, and it's a really good talk that he, that he talks about, you know, the poor and the needy. It's a conference talk. I think it's probably three or four years ago. It's just something to be mindful of. I think that it plays into what, when they're talking about preparing, not, not waiting till the last day, right? When we're talking about being charitable, it's not like on your deathbed you can suddenly say, okay, well, I've been really just hoarding all of my money and all of my help and whatever, but now I'm going to give it all up. And I'm also going to repent from all my sins because I want to go to the other side in a good way. And in verse 32, obviously, of chapter 34, this is like one of the most famous scriptures that we have. I think it's often quoted because it's short and sweet. It says, For behold, this life is the time to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And God is going to look at us as the sum of our existence. He's going to look at us as, what did we do throughout our time here? And that doesn't mean that if you're 75 years old and you haven't been living the gospel well, that you're a lost cause. Because what it means is that you, he will look at that and say, okay, well, yeah, you did make changes at the end of your life. Or maybe you made them when you were 11 years old. The point is, now is the time. Today, right? Now. Uh, not, not next year, I'll, I'll make some changes once I, you know, move or get a different job. Or no, now is the time. Today is the time to perform your labors. doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter what, what situation you are. There's no time to wait. Because we don't know when it will end for us. We don't know when time will be up. And the best way to go about it is to start now, to be the best you can be. I think it, it can kind of, you know, in verse 33, I beseech you, of you that you will not, that you do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, which is given unto us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness wherein there can, no labor can be performed. He cannot say when ye are brought to the awful crisis, I will repent. That's kind of going back to it again, you know. Can't wait till the last moment to just, out of fear, be motivated by fear to make changes. Start now because you know it's the right thing to do, not just because you're afraid, right, of what your consequences might be. Yeah, I think I, I look at that and I think uh, I hear that and I look and I think about the purpose of this life is for us to learn how to use our agency to choose good over evil and to be to be exposed to evil to know good from evil right and to follow jesus christ follow his teachings and people come to that at different stages you know like the parable of the laborers at different times of the days they come to him 
And the the message I hear is over and over again, especially in the Book of Mormon when they quote Isaiah, it says, you know, his hand is stretched out. How many times have I gathered you as a hand gathered her chickens? You know, how many, you know, and the invitation is always there. Now, I would ask if, if what Alma's saying is true, if there is a path and a way to live life, they call this the gospel of Jesus Christ or the word. And knowing if that's true will change your entire life. It will improve it. And furthermore, it will improve your afterlife. It will help you feel all the voids you feel you have. It will bring you peace. It will start making making this existence make sense to you. If if that is what this experiment can do, what why wouldn't you want to know? You can always go back if it's false, right? You've been there before. You've gone down that road. You know what that feels like. Why wouldn't you want to try a new road, a different path? And if if we liken it to this planting a seed and nurturing a tree, okay, you're going to Home Depot. What kind of soil are you going to grab for this experiment? What what kind of what kind of place are you going to place it in? You know, are you going to put it in the side by the garbage cans on a little patch of dirt, you know, on the side of your fence? Or are you going to put it center stage in your yard? Are, are, are you going to water it? I mean, you know, with, with dirty canal water, are you going to go by filtered? Are you going to get the best? Are you going to give this the best opportunity to succeed? Because if it is true, then it means that nothing else really matters. And everything that matters to you will only be enhanced by it, will only be made eternal by it. Your associations can continue forever. You know, your whole outlook can change. If that is true, why not give it the best chance you get and prove God if this is true? But it requires agency. It's not going to fall on your lap. It's not just going to be by happenstance oh yeah you know you know there's a lot of things in our life that happens by happenstance our height our skin color our our nationality those things we can't control this we can control our amount of effort and diligence and patience and heed that we choose to give to find out for ourselves what is the purpose of our lives what are we here to do what you know, and and if and if God is real, does He answer our prayers? And if He does, then what does He want me to do? That's real, and that you can work on. And 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 Satan would have us think that that's unknowable, untouchable, and would flip that around and say, "Go worry about things of the world that you can't really change. Go spend your energy on 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 that and." Avoid the actual, the most important thing you could find out for yourself. If God is real, if Jesus Christ is real, and if they have a plan for you. Yeah, and I, I think that a lot of times we get so caught up in 
I don't know. I think this this example of the Zoramites is really good because we have a people who are attending a synagogue. They are going to church. They're rejecting the people that maybe don't fit into their clique, maybe don't fit into what they want to have in their worship space. So they kick them out. And those people are the people who are most willing and ready to learn and follow the gospel. And what what part of that situation are we on? Where do we find ourselves? Are we on the side that's humble, that's ready to listen, that's ready to learn? Or are we on the side that wants to um, limit who can participate with us or pick and choose who we want to be involved with or who we want to share our space with? We really have to be careful about that. We, we want to be on the side that that is in, that is wanting to live the gospel of Jesus Christ and not just wanting to appear that way. I don't know. I think the Zoramites were really good at creating a, a an appearance of righteousness without necessarily living it. And we got to be careful about that because anyone is susceptible to that, right? It feels good to go... And worship, it feels good to pat each other on the back about it. And it's difficult sometimes to face that we might not be doing it to the in the best way. And we need to make sure that we're being inclusive and involving people who need it most. Yeah. And we skipped a little section in the at the beginning of 34 where where Amulek speaks very specifically about the atonement and sacrifices. And he kind of reiterates again that, that Jesus Christ, well, in verse 9, it says it's expedient that an atonement should be made, you know, and it's central to the great plan, you know. And then he, he talks um, towards the end of that. All are fallen and are lost and must perish except it be through the atonement, which is expedient that it should be made. For it is expedient, you know, he uses that word a lot, <laughs> that there should be a great and last sacrifice, yea, not a sacrifice of man, neither of beasts, neither of any matter of fowl, for it shall be not a human sacrifice, but it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. And then he, he says something really interesting, you know, he says, uh, now there is not any man that can sacrifice his own blood which will atone for the sins of another. Now, if a man murdereth, behold, the law requires, to, uh, behold, will our law, which is just, take the life of his brother? I say unto you, nay. So he's saying we can't substitute people. and, and think Everyone must account for their own sins, except through Christ. And it says, but the law requires the life of him who murdered. Therefore, there can be nothing which is short of an infinite atonement, which will suffice for the sins of the world. And I think what what I was thinking about that is, at first I was a little bit confused. I was thinking, well, isn't that exactly what Christ does for us? He suffers for us. And he's kind of saying, no, no one can actually do that. But you need an infinite atonement, which means you need an individual who is so pure who did nothing wrong to suffer so much that mercy 
can be extended on his behalf. We are forgiven because of Christ, because of everything he went through. Not because of all the great things I've done, all the times I was going to say a bad word and decided not to. That goes into the jar. Yes, I'm going (laughs) to cash in. I'm so much better than others. No, it's nothing like that. It is he has claim upon us. And because he is so good, we can all kind of ride his coattails in, right? We can be counted as he is. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of at the heart of all of this, you know. Um, we, we do all of these things because even the love we have for each other, for our families, and, and it's, it's all based around the love he has and our Father in Heaven have for us. And, and, and they're asking us, will you talk to us? Will you pray? Will you ask for what you need? So I can guide you, so I can help you. And we forget that we're in a learning stage. We're here to learn. We're here to grow. And at times, you know, as a kid, I would think, oh, why doesn't just God come down and tell us? Well, we were there. That was the preexistence. We were in his presence. And he did tell us. He did teach us. You know, that, that has already occurred. We are here because we're. it's a test. We're here to, now you need to go choose on your own. And if you would like help, please invite me to come help you. And mm-hmm. I'll send prophets, I'll send scriptures, I'll send things to humble you. I hope you are humbled. But if not, I got you with this calamity, with this trial. So you can remember, you know, why you're really here. And remember that you're not cut off. Pray often. Remember that you have that connection still anywhere, anytime about anything that is concerning you. I think that, yeah, that's a a really good breakdown of what this all means. So a lot of them decide to change their ways. And they join the people of Ammon, right? In Jershom. Yeah, they they have to they kind of have to leave their homes, but they're given land and near the people of Ammon, and they're able to to move over there and kind of go on with their lives there. And then, of course, we kind of get that foreboding scripture where it's like, and following this will be a lot of uh, wars. <laughs> you know, there will be a lot of wars coming because of all of this. I think it's kind of reaching that that point where conflict is extending beyond philosophy and it's going to get they always had wars and contentions and stuff like that but it's going to get to where we can't just talk about good and evil anymore now we have to defend good from evil and that really gets to that point in the following chapters the book of mormon is truly the keystone of our religion and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow and in time 
you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that He has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places, that the Spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.